0: Blackwater, the Wagner Group, Executive Outcomes, the Flying Tigers, the Swiss Guard, the White Company, the Knights Templar, the Varangian Guard, Clercus of Sparta, Pythagoras the Spartan, Mentor of Rhodes, Socrates of Achaea. The list is endless. Mercenaries, guns for hire, soldiers of fortune, private military companies, private security contractors, dirty deeds done not so dirt cheap. History is replete with privatized militaries, call them what you want, they have been around for a very long time and they are very likely not going away anytime soon. So you better get used to it, grow up and accept it or move to another planet, because these days in this world folks, money trumps everything and like it or not wars are good very good for business and pandemics as if the only pandemic being hyped is an actual thing folks epidemics and pandemics have been around for as long as mankind the only thing hurting anyone is the pandemic of the ignorant the gullible and the blindly obedient Furthermore, history tells us that more people are enslaved and killed by such means as greed, corruption, oppression, and tyranny than by any other means, money, profits, and propaganda. Call it psychological operations or call it psychological conditioning. You are being gaslit. So choose the red pill. Remove your blinders, all of them, and take a good sensory inventory of what you're being told and shown to believe, because here we go. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Oconus, The Contractor's Life, talking from the relatively insulated, if we call it rural, foothills of northwestern Washington State. I'm your host, Scott Dresser. Life as a private security contractor in a hostile or a war torn zone or a non permissive environment. It is a mixed bag of blessings. Some good, some not so good. All in all, though, private security contracting is much the same as life. It is what you make it. The MENA region or the Middle East, North Africa region, lands of enchantment, lands of mystery, lands of the Old Ones and the Ancient Ones, myths, legends, folklore, maybe. If you believe what you read in the ancient and the holy texts, then you know that it all centered around what we refer to as the MENA region. Yep, primarily the Mediterranean folks. And you probably also know that in every legend or myth, there is a base of at least some truth. Alright folks, so picking up where we left off on the previous episode, at least more or less. And uh, I've been told that there's a few things I missed and forgot that I said I was going to talk about and forgot to. So I'm going to try to pick up and uh, talk about or explain or discuss uh, those things that I've alluded to but for whatever reasons uh, forgot to again it might have to do with memory being a funny thing <laughs> anyway so my time uh, my during my first tour in Iraq as a private security contractor that was with the company SOC. now at that time I think they were known as SOC SMG at that time um, And, you know, they've had various iterations over the years. And I think now they're back to just plain old sock again. So my time with them on the ground there lasted only roughly approximately one month. It might have gone five or six weeks. Uh, And the reason for that is one that probably a lot of us have experienced. Um, It was an ND. okay, And that is negligent discharge. Now, I've heard folks refer to it as AD or accidental discharge well I'm here to tell you folks at least in my opinion and in my experiences accidental hardly it's kind of like we ubiquitously refer to car wrecks as accidents now most of us know (laughs) that most of them are not accidents okay now they might be unintentional so you could have an unintentional discharge just as you have an unintentional wreck but you have a wreck you have a negligent discharge okay Somewhere, someone had a brain fart, acted stupidly, or was overly aggressive. So kind of like during the WPS days where they said, we want aggressive, but not overly aggressive. Okay, (laughs) there's a time and place to be aggressive and overly aggressive. Anyway, so uh, probably somewhere between the four and six week mark, we went out uh in teams and groups and we were going through uh I don't know what they called it. It wasn't it wasn't a qualification, but it kind of was it was somewhere between a qualification and refamiliarization with stuff. And uh everything was going well until the final thing. Uh it was my turn, got behind the M60, we had a target down there. Uh the the boss wanted us to draw basically what amounts to an oval shaped rectangle on the target um and i forget exactly how i explained it but it had something to do with he just wanted to know that you can handle the weapon and draw a pattern <laughs> okay and it didn't have to be precise didn't have to be perfect but he wanted an uh, a rectangle with an oval at the top <clears throat> okay so by this time this weapon it was the m60 okay and anybody who shot the m60 knows that for lack of a better term it's prone to misfire or jamming or other feed problems and one thing or another it, it can happen you know a well-oiled machine um i mean there, there it historically was it was a solid platform but it is susceptible to that sort of thing so it happened to me a lot of people have been shooting it we hadn't cleaned it we'd spent a lot of rounds downrange. my turn and i <laughs> shouldn't have gone last but that's what happens anyway got back there, uh, I forget, sent however many rounds down range. It was coming up near the top, maybe even starting my, my, my curve when the weapon stopped firing. Um, I don't recall whether it was a misfeed or, or whatever it was. So anyway, we stopped. We, we called it, uh, you know, um, I forget the exact verbiage, but basically, you know, stop fire, stop fire, kind of whatever. And uh, we told him what was going on. The guy that was, uh, and each time somebody fired, uh, we, we had somebody that was the ammo feeder. Uh, because anybody that's fired these weapons knows that unless you've got an, uh, the automated system with, I forget what they call it, but there is, for lack of a better term, kind of like a bar, a T-type t- bar where the weapon where the ammo can feed over it. Otherwise, you need somebody to kind of hold it up away from the weapon as it feeds in. So, it, so that the, 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 rounds don't jam when they go in anyway. So uh, he's taking it apart where, you know, <coughs> we put everything on safe, uh, pull the bolt back, extract the rounds, get the, the, the jammed round out of there. We verify that everything's clear, go through all the safety procedures, uh, go to put it back. And in order to do this, you got to press the trigger, but you also got to have hold of the, uh, the the charging handle. So we're slowly running the bolt forward. I thought I had my finger. Now this is where it gets a little hazy. I was cert- I knew I had my finger on the trigger because we had to. What I had forgot to do is either I had forgotten to take my finger completely off the trigger, because I, uh, I for anyway. So somewhere along the way. My finger was still on the trigger somehow. I don't remember having done that, but apparently I did. So as soon as that bolt met, bah, 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 I don't know, three or four rounds, maybe five at the most went downrange. You know, I mean, I quickly let go and it's like, oh, crap. Now, I've been on plenty of projects and stuff like that in, in instructional stuff where stuff like that happens and everybody pays attention to the dude that just did it, right? We all know how that goes. All right. But typically, as long as uh, you hear this sometimes in sports, no harm, no foul, usually that's the way it worked out. However, um, not the company necessarily, but that particular project had uh, a one strike, you're out kind of thing if you have an ND. Now, years later, I figure out that that's not a bad way to go. And, um, you know, talking with, uh, I remember one one particular conversation uh with an instructor in the wps program and he was telling me and a couple other guys the story about it was a brief story about him and a group of dudes they were in the hallway they were doing a you know uh some some instructional training and uh you know your finger is your safety okay yeah some weapons have a safety mechanism built into them a physical safety mechanism but primarily the safety is your finger okay Anyway, so he sent, I forget what it but it was a friend of his, um, and they had an ND in the hallway. He said, fortunately, nobody got hurt. The, the bullet ricocheted and bounced and found its way harmlessly into a wall. Regardless, that dude was summarily dumped from the team right there on the spot. Okay. So, I mean, it's not a bad policy. It kind of sucks to be the dude when it happens. But more than that, I don't know anybody who's been honest, who has been shooting long enough, who hasn't had at least one ND. It happens for a variety of reasons, but it happens. So rather than getting all bent out of shape and and sullen and sulky and pissing and moaning and complaining about everybody else or the rules, this, that, dude, that's the rules. Rock and roll with it. Big boy rules, you know the rules, play with it, okay? Learn from it, okay? You have got to be cognizantly aware, focused on the moment when you have a firearm on your person, especially if it's in your hands and it's poised. Poised whether it's at low ready, low rest, high ready, you know, finger on the trigger, whatever. You are responsible. And if somebody walks in front of you, or gets in your path it's on you to not shoot them yeah they're an idiot they're a moron they're tactically unaware yada 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 but ultimately it's your responsibility to not shoot that person who walks in front of you which is one of the many reasons why and i've i've even done this with cops i had a project here about a month ago where we were talking and i had to correct her and she acknowledged it that I was correct on that. And what it is, is that you keep both eyes open when shooting. You see a lot. I see a lot of people, whether it's a rifle or a shotgun, a pistol, a revolver, when they're taking shots, particularly when it's beyond point-blank range. So if we're beyond 2 to 5 yards or 2 to 5 meters, once we get out to 7 and 10, I almost always see the non-well-versed people shooting with one eye. One eye closed, one eye open. In fact, I've even seen a fair number of people who are otherwise well-versed do it. Not always, but they do it quite a lot. But the thing is about keeping both eyes open is you are more situationally aware. Think about it. Call it a tactical situation, whatever. If you've got an eye closed, whether it's, let's say it's your left eye because you're right eye dominant or you're whatever you're right-handed so you close your left eye because it's not as blurry it's not as fuzzy you can see better you know just go down the endless list of reasons and excuses you get you have effectively cut your vision in half you can see nothing to the left of of what you're looking at so if i'm a bad guy or i have evil intent And I know that, and I see that, okay? There are plenty of situations and scenarios where you can have somebody walk up and execute you with a firearm, a knife, smack you with a bat, you know, disable you, whatever. Keep both eyes open when you're shooting. Learn to shoot with both eyes. Figure it out. It takes lots of practice, but you got to do it. Okay, so back to my N.D., in Iraq, on the range <coughs> it was kind of bullshit it was kind of garbage but whatever I accepted it it was me I did it I took the heat went home uh, it was probably oh I don't know three or four days before I actually flew home and their policy was you go home you take a month cool off do whatever you got to do and come back so I'm home and I don't remember if I was wor- if I took a part-time job then or not but I was also looking for other jobs, because at the time, there was a group of guys I knew, they were all talking about EODT, and of course, other stuff, Um, other companies out there. But one of them that a lot of guys were talking about was EODT, because they paid a lot more. Um, So I had applied with them. So anyway, so not quite a month, we have this group environment interview, where there's a group of us, and they're going down the list of names, making sure that you're actually in on the conversation we're going down this and i started hearing things i did not want to hear and i'm like oh my god and i even heard the name of a guy that i knew it's like oh well this may not be so bad we'll both be in the same vicinity anyway if not on the same project be that as it may and i won't go into all the details but it's like man that's a garbage project i'm not gonna be part of that so i took eodt's offer Went with them, went through their stuff, um, and part of it was going through the crucible. Now, some of you have probably been through the crucible. And at that time, actually a little bit before that time, I don't remember how far before that time, sometime in this century, uh, at least the Marine Corps, don't know about the Army, had a thing that they called the crucible. Well, EODT also had a private security instructional training program that they called the crucible. It was pretty good. I was I was uh moderately impressed with the whole program. Uh so anyway, so we go through that. We go down range uh with EODT. My time with SOC was up. Um it was a great project I was on. I, I enjoyed it, but um you know, my it it was like everything happens for a reason. And like I've said that I've said that before and quite often, if not always, We never know what that reason is until sometime later. And it can sometimes be a very long time before you figure out what that reason was. Call it the grace of God. Call it His plan. Whatever you want to call it. I'm saying everything happens for a reason. So I got on with EODT and ended up going back to Iraq. Now this time... um, as I re- recollect, with EODT, they had stuff in Baghdad. They had stuff pretty much everywhere, like a lot of the, the, the larger companies did. And people ask EODT. Well, that's uh, it was started by, as I recollect, a, a Marine who was with EOD. So that's where the EOD part comes from. And then the T is the technologies. So EOD technology, because originally their contracts were going out and defusing, um, you know, IEDs and stuff like that. So on this project, so I'm back in Iraq. Uh, This time it's in southern Iraq um, in the Nazaria area. Um, (laughs) I mean, it's really not a big deal. Everybody's, well, not everybody, but it's public knowledge. You can find them out there. You can find the bases and everything out there. Um, The cobs, uh, the fobs, the outposts. I mean, unless it's a black site and it's been smeared out of the image, Uh, You'll see them, but it's in the so in the greater Nazaria area. uh, And that's where I spent the first part of my time with EODT. And we were there probably two or three months. I remember it was two months or three months. And that was because EODT lost that contract. So we ended up going to Afghanistan after that. Now, how they lost that contract is still kind of a conversation of, uh, of some mystery and, and some contention um, I've heard more or less the the full story it involved I think I've mentioned this before an EODT uh, contractor challenging what turned out to be a general with his entourage trying to get into the MWR gym uh, that was in a you know one of those great big elongated tube type tents and um, Anyway, he challenged him because apparently the general didn't have his uh, identification or he didn't have it on him. Or for whatever reason, he was testing the dude and and didn't present it. Well, he challenged it. He refused to let the dude in. um, And that spelled the end of it. Now, apparently, now the back history to that is apparently there were other things about EODT that whatever they were doing or not doing also led into that or lent to it that decision but that primarily was the one that killed that project the way that story went and i've also mentioned uh that i've had similar experiences with with especially with officers uh usually at the colonel range whether it's lieutenant or full Bird and generals where for whatever reason they claim to not have this or that with them whether they're in a vehicle or they're on foot or whatever and it's like uh But one thing I always kept with me was something that was told to me, and it's almost verbatim, which is like, look, dude, we all know who each other is. If you're here long enough, you know who we are, and we know who you are. So when you see us, why hold us up? We're not a threat. Do you really think that we are going to allow an IED or a terrorist to come in with us? (laughs) You know, so... They understood, I mean, some processes are processes and procedures are procedures, and sometimes you just got to do it, okay? Especially when your boss man says, yep, that's what we're doing. And 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 one of those things was rams. And I'll go, you know, um, when I was with EODT later, when we were in Baghdad, we had a lot of those rams. And RAM, a ram is not the animal, but random access measures. And it, it basically... It's just that it's random sometimes it didn't seem like it was random (laughs) sometimes it felt like you're just picking on them man you don't like them (laughs) you know whatever so anyway so we're 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 down there in the in the nazaria area we're at this big cob um and that project uh comes to an end but that was a great project though i enjoyed it it was pretty hot you know a little further south in iraq it was hotter than it seemed hotter than it was a little bit further north, and uh, I mean, seeing the lights of Nazaria at night, you could see the the facilities, not clearly and distinctly, but you could see the city and the facilities from where we were at, depending on where you were situated. Uh, but we had I had plenty of experiences there, uh, and and we had, you know, people testing us sometimes just to see if we were, you know, paying attention, and that sometimes kind of was a subject of controversy not much but i mean it it, it kind of was a buzz it's like okay is it our people and our company testing us to see especially those of us that are running the perimeter and are we paying attention are the guys in the towers paying attention because they're right there and we, we had i think i mentioned the number 30 but i think it was closer to 40 towers at one point uh there were roughly 30 right around 30, that, ran, that, that lined the perimeter. But there was another 10 or 12 on the interior closer, uh, still within slingshot of the uh, perimeter, but they were interior. And granted, for whatever reason, uh, these guys didn't p- pick up or pay attention to an awful lot of stuff that went on. And That was a constant source of irritation for a lot of people especially me because at that time i was in charge of perimeter security specifically for the towers um but the perimeter security was was, was my aor i wasn't the only one because depending because uh depending on whether i was working days or nights and we switched off um so i had my opposite counterpart and i was the supervisor in charge and that i'm telling you that's a pretty big cob out there and it takes a little time <laughs> to make the rounds if you don't get distracted and held up, you can make that run two or three times in the course of a 12 hour period. Uh, now, you know, a lot of stuff happens, and sometimes you only get to it twice or once and a half, sometimes only one. And uh, so, other times, you've got to rely on the guard force and their leadership to go and check on things that you can't do. So, I mean, what kind of things happened when I was there? Well, uh, there really wasn't as I recall, any indirect action on that cob while I was there. That is, I don't recollect incoming, whether it was mortars or rockets or RPGs. Um, there were one or two occasions when we thought that there was some in, some directed small arms fire, and there was one case, where and if you look usually binoculars you could see the location they were talking about um, that they had found a cache where a sniper had been now who that person was and who they were affiliated with there was all kinds of stuff uh you know as to who it was and and that was behind it and i don't recall if they actually caught that person but they certainly found the cache they found the rifle they found the ammo and there was talk about a ghillie suit of some sort out there. So, and <laughs> one tower in particular, there were two or three that had bullet holes in them that from, from that kind of fire. And so these guys were always wary and nervous about that. One in particular had like three or four of them. And I thought, wait a minute. I thought they was supposed to be bulletproof glass. Well, they thought so too. <laughs> Apparently it wasn't. Or at least not resistant to the type of bullets that were being shot from that rifle and other rifles like it and of course he was probably as i recall they said he was only like 150 200 meters out maybe three at the most so he was getting pretty close so they have (coughs) like a lot of fobs and cobs and outposts they had plenty of electronic measures going on and i'm not going to go into detail about it except that you had everything from infrared to thermal, to, you know, basic visual stuff. And you could zoom in quite a bit. And I remember one time being in the B-Doc or the Base Defense Operations Center um, they and looking at the monitors. And I was like, man, there's a lot of monitors in here. <laughs> uh, one in particular where it was kind of a dusty, sandy night and, you know, visibility was reduced quite a bit and they were using infrared and they were pointing out and talking to me because we thought we saw that on the screens, okay? Was it looked like one of the tricks they did is they dressed up uh, with the sagebrush out there. So they would grab the sagebrush, hide behind it, hunker down, and sporadically, periodically make movements just as if the sagebrush was rolling across the desert. It's a good tactic, (laughs) it worked pretty well. On that particular instance, in that particular instance, they did dispatch QRF that went out there, and you could hear them talking back and forth, directing them there, and these guys had a really tough time finding it. So just because anybody who has notions that this stuff should be simple and easy to do, it's difficult enough during the daylight hours, sometimes anyway, But at night, especially when there's a dust storm, man, that's a whole different ball of wax. Now, should the guys in the towers have been able to see this? Probably, because they had NVGs as well as binoculars. So could they and should they have seen it? Should they be paying attention to their stuff? Absolutely. Were they? Probably not. It was not uncommon, and that was a common refrain from guys that these guys aren't paying attention. They're not doing their thing. They're falling asleep, one thing or another. And I would get on these guys all the time. And I'd remind them, look, there's two of you in here. There's a reason for that. Two sets of eyes, two sets of ears. There is no reason to not be vigilant and not be able to see what's going on and call this stuff in when you spot it, okay? But at the very least, if for whatever reason you didn't get enough sleep and you need a 10 or 15-minute nap because you get that power nap, you should be refreshed that's fine i don't have a problem with it as long as a it's not a habit and b that dude that's standing up he better be extra vigilant okay and when your 15 minutes is up it's up it's over time to get back to work that didn't happen and we would have we had plenty of incidences where or enough of them i should say um I was going to say we had a number of them in one particular sector, but there were other sectors around that perimeter where somebody was coming through the fence and you could see their footprints and you learned to tell whether they were fresh or if they were, had been a, you know, maybe it'd been a half a day or a day or several days. You could tell, uh, but they, but they got really good at it. They would snip the fence just enough that they could get in, squeeze through there and go do whatever they're doing on the base usually stealing stuff taking it out and then putting then twining it back together with more wire so that you could see it you you would notice it if you're paying attention as you're driving by you would notice that it looks like a stitch mark it looks like a scar if you will if you're paying attention driving the perimeter or walking it you'll see it now the guys in the towers obviously should have noticed that stuff they should have been paying attention because as i've said before um i don't recall the exact distance between towers they were pretty pretty spot on in terms of uh of, of, sep- of separation in terms of yardage um, now if you go around a curve or a bend, as the crow flies it might they might be a lot closer than than the ones to the left and right but the actual measurable distance between them was not over 300 yards. And as I recollect, that was the number that was thrown out. It was roughly 300 yards between uh, towers. It might have been 250 yards. It might have been 200. Uh, but, that, but that was probably the, the separation between the towers. So there was really no good reason with NVGs and binoculars and two guys in these towers at those distances to not see what was going on. So um, it was on people like me. Uh, to make sure that they were standing their post properly. And that was a constant, almost a constant source of irritation when I discovered that these guys weren't taking their job seriously. Now, as I've said before, um, and, you know, some guys agreed, some guys didn't. And those that did agree, not all of them agreed completely or 100%. But for the most part, they were kind of okay with 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 my way of of dealing with it because it was like, look, they're going to pay attention to their leadership more than they're going to pay attention to us. That's just the way it is. And uh, the guard force at that time uh, was African guard force from the, from three or four different countries. Um, so I had a personal supervisory policy. Uh, if I could correct the problem and it was actually corrected I would correct it myself right there and it didn't go any further if however it became a repeatable offense where this uh, or even a constant where they were just constantly infracting they weren't paying attention they weren't doing their job I would go to their leadership I would start with their sergeant first class start with him uh, because their sergeant was basically useless he was a joke Okay, he and I butted heads. We didn't get along well at all, and I had no idea why the guy was actually there. He was part of the problem. He was not. He was most definitely not part of the solution. So I would go to the sergeant first class, and when that, and other times I'd go to their uh, first sergeant, or even their sergeant major. Several times I ended up having to go to their lieutenant. Now, as I recall, their sergeant major and their lieutenant were well-known amongst the African Guard Force. I don't, you know, because they have that tribal thing going on. They're from different tribes, but they all know what tribe they're a part of, and some are feared more than others. And some of these guys had some serious backgrounds in terms of bush wars and one thing or another. At least one, I think two of them, the sergeant major and the lieutenant, were what they called bushmasters. And I think I've discussed this one before, uh, when I had one particular incident, <clears throat> one particular problem with one of the a couple of the guards out there. It was at the uh, truck rally convoy area, on that cob, <clears throat> and uh, we had gone out there um, with just our sidearm, <clears throat> and these guys <clears throat> had their AKs, they racked them. It made it clear that they weren't going to do what we were both telling them to do. No problem. Went back to the B-Doc. Checked up a couple of AKs ourselves. Went back there. Stopped. Talked with them. Made it pretty clear what was going to happen if these guys didn't do their job. Okay. And I think I left one of them there because there were three of them. One of them was okay. He was just kind of caught in the middle. But the other two, and one in particular, we ended up <clears throat> disarming, putting them in the vehicle, driving them to the B dock. As it turns out, their lieutenant was walking out as we were approaching the entrance. Asked me what's going on. I told him, This dude was livid, and he went to town on this guard that I had brought in, dressing him down. In their native language, occasionally speaking a little bit of English toward the end. Something to the effect like, I'm in the charge. I'm the boss. You don't tell me what to do. I tell you what to do. And that was toward the end of it, if not the end of it. That guard was quite literally, physically shaking. So whatever this lieutenant told him shook this guy up pretty bad. Never had another incident with that guy. Problem solved. Now, that wasn't the only time that I, I had incidents or problems with the guard force and had to go to their leadership, and their leadership almost always took care of it. Because their leadership, the guys, their, their sergeant majors, the first sergeants, and, and their lieutenants or whatnot, we usually got along pretty well because they knew that I was, pro- I was typically an even-keeled, level-headed guy I treated their, their, their troops well. I treated them as equals. I showed no favoritism. Um, I wasn't overly harsh, but I wasn't overly lax either. Okay. I would give these guys a fair shake. And I did plenty of incentivizing things um, between, um, between these, these locations in, in Iraq where I worked with these guys, including spending $5 a day for a week or two at a time. Every day saying, All right, let's break up the monotony. Let's have some contests, whether it was push up contests or pull up contests or some other contests. And whoever won got five dollars. I pulled a five dollar bill, handed it to the winner. Okay. That incentivized these guys to no end. And they you could see the smiles on their faces and one thing or another, and they all wanted to partake and, and get that five dollars. Now I and I remember guys saying, well, they're only making a buck to a buck fifty an hour. okay." but again, as I've said before, you talk to their leadership to say that's a lot of money in Africa. Actually, that's not bad. That's two to three times what they would make at most jobs. So they're actually doing pretty good. okay. so, you know, not uncommon, not dissimilar from Western forces, particularly the Americans. We were making two to three, sometimes four times what we'd make in the States. Same thing with the African Guard Force. But that $5 was a big deal because that was almost five days pay just for excelling physically or whatever we were doing, whatever it was that I I was trying to incentivize them. So it worked well. So there is psychology to it. So it's not all harsh treatment. It's, It's not all do what I say or else. And I made a point of being outside, being seen visibly, seeing me do stuff, interacting with them, saying, look, I may not be you. I may not be one of you. I may not be from where you're at. But I'm out here on the ground, in the heat, or in the cold, in the sand, okay? Subject to the same environment that you're subject to. And I'm out here doing my job. And I'm helping you. Because there were plenty of times they needed or wanted something that I could help them get. Okay? So, then what else happens out there? I mean, you know, there's plenty to talk about. And I don't want to... Uh, throw them all out in this episode but I mean so for example uh, sometimes arguably frequently you might find or come across something that that looks odd or doesn't look like it belongs there it wasn't there six hours ago it wasn't there yesterday whatever but there it is today and usually it's an object whether it, it looks like a backpack or it looks like a box that fell off a truck that shouldn't be there and the, the the typical response is treat it like an IED. If nobody has reported or will confirm when you're talking to them that they saw it, that they just now notice it as well, you've got to treat it as an IED. <laughs> okay, and there were several of those. There one in particular. It was over near a complex, uh, a building that uh, that was like a lot of them that were no longer utilized nobody inhabited it nobody worked there and in this particular case it was uh, referenced and referred to as one of chemical ali's former facilities and chemical ali uh, for those of you who know know, but if you don't chemical ali look that up it's probably still out there um, so this package was out there i called it in uh better play it safe I mean, the army wanted that. The company wanted that. Made sense. You don't know, and the chance that it is an IED, I don't want to be any closer to it than I have to be. Right? We just don't know what's in there. So, uh, one of the one of the guys that that's also for the guard force that does stuff around the perimeter also decided he wanted to go up there. So he he disobeyed. He went up there and walked up there rapidly decided to get down check it out touch it move it look underneath it and i'm like oh, oh, oh man um yeah so anyway fortunately nothing went boom i don't remember what it was but whatever it was it turned out to be rather innocuous eod did finally show up and i think that was one thing you were saying man they'll be they'll take forever but, you know you know by the time they get here and he, he it's like, whatever, you know, I, I'm not going to chase this guy down, get that close to it. Uh, it's not like we were taking fire. If we were taking fire, one thing or another, he probably wouldn't have done it. But so we had stuff like that. Other times there would be what looked like and you get up there and use your binoculars. And it, yeah, it looks like an unexploded ordnance had come over the fence and was on the road around the perimeter. And, uh, you know, sometimes they were just test devices, again, to see if we were paying attention. Other times they weren't. It just depended. You never knew for sure. Better play it safe than be sorry. Because if you're sorry, you're probably not going to remember because you're probably dead. So am I bashing on the African Guard Force? Maybe. But that's not my intent. Because, again, as I've said before, everybody is not the same. So might there have been more bad actors than good actors? Yeah, arguably, but there's still plenty of good dudes out there uh, that looked out for themselves and troops and people like me. And we looked out for them because they were good people and they wanted to do the job. So there are still plenty of more stories uh, in that, just in that region that I was at. We'll come back to those. We'll, pick up and do more of those and uh between now and the next episode i'll go through my list of all the stuff that i've alluded to uh but didn't get to and we'll pick those up in the next episode all right so until then i want to thank you and everyone for taking time out of your day afternoon or evening to listen to me talk about private security contracting overseas as well as some of my experiences as a private security contractor overseas thank you again to kava cohen and colin perry and thank you andres rodriguez and thank you to my wife whom i owe immeasurable gratitude my children and all the folks male and female who have been and still are a part of my life remember folks it takes a team the grass is not always greener on the other side Be careful what you wish for. You might just get it. Stay humble, stay safe, and keep others safe by staying frosty. And until next time, keep it real.